When it comes to bra shopping, it is all about finding the right fit for you. And there's only one laundry brand that offers bras in sizes AA through G and half cup sizes. Third Love. Third Love uses thousands of real women's measurements and super smoothing memory foam to create bras that fit better and feel great. Did you know that most old school bra brands only carry 15 sizes? Well, Third Love has 60 sizes, including half cups. Never heard of a half cup size? Well, that's because no one else does it. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. I may, in fact, do some shopping myself on the First Love site. I think that the lace uh, racerback bra is in stock again, and it is with the warm weather coming, it's nice to have a bra that looks like you mean it to show if you're wearing a, you know, bracer back something or other. Because I personally believe that no, I, I don't think there is a racer back bra that's been invented that is truly never going to have a strap show. Might as well have the straps be pretty, uh, like the Third Love uh, racer back bra is. To find the bra that you've been waiting for, all you have to do is answer a few simple questions on Third Love's Fit Finder quiz. It just takes 30 seconds, and you can do it all from the comfort of your home. You will never have that awkward fitting room experience again. I guess we want to conserve the awkwardness uh, for only when we have to experience it, right? Try a Third Love bra. It's so comfortable you might forget you're wearing it, and if you don't agree, returns and exchanges are always easy and free. This year, make the change. That will change the way you think about bras. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash friends for 15% off your next purchase. Hi, it's Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, a show about the possibilities and limits of friendship. And today is a conversation very much about that. My guest is Christian Picciolini, who is an award-winning director and producer, but is here to talk about being a white supremacist and his journey away from that to becoming someone that works with others to get them out of that movement. It's unfortunately a topic that we're all very interested in today. A little bit of housekeeping before the interview. Uh, this is the last episode of season one of With Friends Like These. I want to thank everyone who's listening right now because I can't thank the people who are not listening, I guess. Um, but I thank everyone who's uh, done anything to help the show, whether it's listening to it or writing a review or emailing me or tweeting at me, whatever it is that you did. Um, thanks. And of course, thanks to all my guests and thanks to Crooked Media. This has been one of the most fulfilling things I have ever done, ever in my life. Uh, getting to talk to interesting people about interesting things in ways that promote compassion and empathy and understanding. Uh, getting to talk to people who have said things that have changed my life, changed the way that I look at things. Uh, Ira uh, Madison and Rembert Brown, uh, Alice Wong, um, I didn't write any of these down, so I'm just coming from the top of my head on this, but this show has changed who I am. Like, as your host, these conversations have changed me. So season two, hopefully, keep changing. We're going to take a hiatus for two weeks and then be back with more and better, maybe some tweaks to the structure, um, but probably just keep on keeping on. Thanks again to everyone. And hey, if you haven't already rated and reviewed, eh, go rate and review. So I can thank you. Now for the show. 
So Christian Picciolini is an Emmy award-winning director and producer, a public speaker, and the author of White American Youth, My Descent into America's Most Violent Hate Movement and How I Got Out. He is a reformed extremist who now helps other people disengage from extremism. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Anna. It's good to talk to you again. It's good to talk to you, too. I We talked, uh, we were just remembering that both of us spoke, uh, I believe, during the campaign, and the interview had some similar themes. Um, not much has changed. Not <laughs> much has changed. It's actually just gotten a little bit more intense. Yeah, exactly. And I have seen more of you. That's the other thing that's changed, is at the time that I talked to you, I felt like people were just starting to get to know what the what the alt-right was. I think maybe the, the the hook may have been Hillary's speech on the alt-right. That's why we were talking to you. Mm, that's right. It, it was kind of like springing into national consciousness. Um, now I see you around in media fairly regularly. And I think there's just a, to judge by the people who write in to, to my show, there's so much interest and awareness around what you're doing. Mm. Did you ever think that this area of expertise that you have would come to be so relevant in our national conversation? Well, I, I, you know, I really believe that over the last 20 years, uh, 23 years, really, since I've left uh, the white supremacist movement, I've been steadily seeing a rise and an increase in hate crimes and, and uh, you know, hateful rhetoric uh, becoming more a part of the mainstream. So I've been concerned for, for quite a long time. Uh, and certainly the election of 2016 was like a bucket of gasoline was kicked over all those sparks that already existed. So it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, I hate to say the word timely because it really is timeless. We're, we're always dealing with something like this, but it's certainly at the fore. Yeah. Hate is a constant. I think how that hate gets expressed is what changes. Right. And maybe what is so concerning now or what's drawing our attention now is that there are so many vehicles for this hatred and so many outlets that maybe we used to think, oh, you're, you're people wouldn't do that, you know, but now, you know, our kind of mores ha- have changed a little bit about the kinds of things that you can say to people. Well, you know, I think that, you know, it's become normalized. I think it's it's okay to certain people to say those things now. They feel like they have a platform uh, and, uh, you know, they're certainly using it. And I say that at the top of my mind right now is also that there's this weird parallel world debate happening about how liberals are censoring speech on campuses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I want to kind of, I mean, I like to think of myself as a you know, First Amendment, somewhat, maybe not absolutist, but very, very pro. But And I don't want speech censored if you're conservative. But I see that debate, and I think that has no relevance to the kinds of stuff I see people talking about on the more everyday level. And the fact that people now say things. I hear things in my everyday life from people that would not be said in polite company two years ago. Right. And I just for an example, I was at CPAC, and like a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to have a whole episode with my CPEC interviews coming up, but oh, spoiler alert for that. Uh, I was interviewing this young woman. She was actually kind of dressed like a riot girl. You know, I thought actually maybe she might be kind of politically more libertarian, mm-hmm. you know, because I was kind of a riot girl and that was sort of my thing. And I, I, I sought her out because I, I, I actually was looking for common ground. And in the middle of our interview, it started to become clear that she had what she would say unpopular uh, opinions about race. Sure. 
And I said, well, why don't you tell me what they are? I mean, I'm not going to, you know, yell at you about it. And she said, well, I think we should be realistic about race, which is kind of a code word. Right. And I said, do you think that, you know, there should be a white ethno state? And she said, no, I think that's too extreme, but there should be a white supermajority. Yeah, she's what you would call or what they're calling themselves as race realists. Uh, Sometimes they use the term white nationalist. Sometimes it's alt-right. Sometimes it's identitarian. And these are all terms that uh, even 30 years ago when I was involved in the movement, we were trying to come up with marketing terms that would make us seem less hateful. Um, (laughs) And, you know, back then we even called ourselves white pride or white separatists, uh, you know, to the outside world. But certainly none of our beliefs uh, behind closed doors were were benign. You know, we were white supremacists. We were neo-Nazis. And, um, you know, we we were saluting. We were, you know, fully on board with with national socialism and and, uh, a white ethno state. So, you know, I, I guess to your listeners, I would just caution that so much of these kind of dog whistles and code words have made it to the American lexicon and become such a normal thing that we're even hearing, you know, CNN and, and uh, Fox and MSNBC talk about these terms, um, even using the term white nationalist, which is a term that they, you know, concocted to to just make them more appealing and, and a little less. Um, that was an invention of white white. Yeah. Supremacists, the, the term white nationalist? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Huh. As was the alt-right. Um, you know, just to soften their image. We knew 30 years ago that the shaved heads, the boots, the swastikas, the tattoos were too edgy for the people we wanted to recruit. Um, you know, the average American white racist. And uh, at that point, we kind of rolled a boulder down a hill and said, we need to, we need to fit in. We need to look like them. We need to sound like them. And we need to be where they are. And uh and here we are 30 years later, and it appears to have taken hold. What is the term you think we should be using? White supremacist. Um, I think that that is the common thread. You know, there are different factions of white supremacists, uh, you know, things like the alt-right or the Klan or skinheads or, or whatever the case may be. But the, the common unifying uh, thread with all of them is they're white supremacists. And we should be more direct about using that rather than adopting the language that they've put forward. Sure, because it's a win for them when we talk about them how they want to be talked about. I mean, you can picture them sitting in a, in a boardroom, uh, you know, tossing around different names on a whiteboard saying, ah, you know, well, we today, you know, we're going to call ourselves white nationalists because that's not as offensive as a white supremacist or, um, you know, a neo-Nazi or anything like that. It's uh, the same thing has happened with the term America first, of Mm, course, mm -hmm. which was an invented catchphrase to cloak white supremacy in some ways. I mean, isolationism and definitely um, racism. Mm, And And, xenophobia and anti-immigration and and, uh, Islamophobia. You can kind of lump them all in under that. Right. And, And then when Trump adopted it, I remember thinking, well, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Our our country has an incredibly short memory, but that's not even a code word. Like he turned it into a code word in a way by ignoring its history. Right. 
And and it came with so much baggage. And it's like they just pretended that baggage didn't exist. And they keep pretending it doesn't exist. Yeah. While, you know, in the meantime, we, we hear dog whistles coming from administration folks using the term globalist when referring to, you know, what they consider elite Jews. Uh, you know, the liberal, the term liberal media is even a concoction of the extreme right, um, you know, but they changed it from the Jewish media to the liberal media. Uh, so all these things that, you know, we hear on a daily basis now have made it, we've become desensitized uh, to how ugly this movement is and the fact that they actually kill a lot of people. And we need to really understand, you know, the the weight behind what this movement is doing. So I wanted, I wanted to have you on to both talk about your own experience and also to answer some questions that I get from listeners all the time. And maybe we should start by filling in your own experience. Sure. Uh, so you you refer you were a, a white supremacist. I was uh, from 1987 until 1995, from the time I was 14 years old until I was 22, uh, a member of America's first neo-Nazi skinhead group. Uh, it started in Chicago uh, in the mid 80s. Uh, I was recruited at 14 because I was uh, for those 14 years very felt very marginalized and disenfranchised and disenchanted. I was bullied. I felt abandoned uh, by my uh, Italian immigrant parents who, you know, back then I didn't really recognize because I wasn't mature enough to, but they were working seven days a week, 14 hours a day, not to avoid me, which is what I thought, but to survive. Uh, and um, I felt like I didn't belong. I didn't know what my identity was. I didn't know what my community was. And I certainly had no idea what my purpose was. And at 14 years old, I met a man uh, twice my age who was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead leader. And uh, he played on on uh, the notion of white pride. That's the gateway drug, if you will. Um, you know, he came to me knowing I was Italian, knowing I was, uh, you know, broken and searching, searching for something. And he told me that my ancestors were... Uh, great warriors and thinkers and and artists, and I should be proud of that. And I was because, in fact, I had lived in an Italian bubble. Um, and uh, but certainly over time, very quickly, it would turn into you know that that European pride that you have is being taken away, uh, and it's being taken away by you know this group and that group and this group. Essentially, anybody who wasn't us, uh, but you know mostly. Uh, based on Jewish uh, control conspiracies and, and, you know, what they call multiculturalism as a tool uh, to commit white genocide, essentially. And I started to become very afraid of losing uh, really the only thing that I had ever known that I was proud of, that I felt couldn't be taken away from me. And uh, through that fear rhetoric, um, I jumped in head first and at 16 years old became the leader of that group. I want to continue with her story, but also interject a friend of mine, Betsy Hodges, a former mayor of Minneapolis sometimes talks about how unfortunate it is, how tragic it is really that we don't have a language and a narrative and a way of talking about our white heritage and white history that doesn't also wrap up white supremacy hmm. and become a tool for separating us from other people. Like, well, I think we can find a way to talk about, you know, accomplishments. It's just harder. It's difficult, I think. I think we need to acknowledge our mistakes first yes. before we start talking about that. I mean, we may be one of the only societies that has experienced the genocide and has never really talked about it or come to terms with that. And I'm talking about slavery and even the native uh, plight. 
Um, and as a country, America has really never come to terms with that. You know, Germany yeah. has and, and uh, you know, some other places have. Um, but I think until we decide that we are going to start over and, f- and figure out how to make it an even plane and admit our mistakes from our past, I don't know that we will ever find a way to really move past it. I use the language of recovery to talk about white supremacy a lot because it 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 seems to me something like an addiction. Oh, absolutely. And I think when my friend Betsy is also in recovery, and I think she would appreciate this way of looking at it, and which is that in order to get to a place where we can talk talk with comfort about a heritage and and pride in whiteness, we would have to first yes, like acknowledge the wrongs and make amends for them. Right. Much as a person in recovery, you don't just get to skip to being proud of yourself. We, <laughs> right. We need to recover. We haven't given you, ourselves the opportunity to recover. Right. We've just run uh, from our past and and tried to sweep it under the rug. And of course, you know, now we know that that, that, that tactic certainly didn't work because I believe it's more prevalent than ever in our society. Um you know, we've gone from openly speaking about it, uh, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago to now having not talked about it and, and thinking we were out of the woods or in, living in a post-racial society. And, and here we are again uh, after having ignored it. And it's it's staring us back in the face. I interviewed Trevor Noah once and he, coming from South Africa, mm. he seemed so legitimately awestruck that America had gone through 300 years of chattel slavery and a civil war and never had a reconciliation movement. You know, what, what's interesting. There was, because in South Africa, obviously, like, they just did that shit, right? Right, right. They just talked about it. <laughs> yeah. It was a whole formal thing. You know, at 15 years old, I submitted an application to the Afrikaner resistance movement in South right. Africa because I wanted to go there and and fight. And that may very well have made me one of the earliest foreign fighters. Um, luckily I was turned away. I was only 15 years old. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have to deal with, with these things that have happened to us. We have to recover. We have to, to acknowledge the trauma that it's caused. Uh, and then we need to fix it. And so many of the things that, you know, affected, uh, you know, our white supremacist culture from 250, 300 years ago are still, part of our institutions and part of our systems that, uh, you know, while they purport to, to be fair and, and just uh, are certainly not based on the, the statistics. So getting back to your story, I want to get to the part about, you know, stepping away from the movement, you're, you're hitting, hitting bottom and hmm. starting your, your journey of recovery. But first I'm, I'm curious, did anyone ever try to argue you out of your beliefs when you were a white supremacist? All the time. Um, yeah. And I can tell you that it didn't work. It actually made me go deeper into what I was a part of um, because I saw them as the opposition. I saw them as people who were part of, you know, this structure of lies that were uh, being fed to everybody. And if, if they didn't know it, they were at least complicit in it. Um you know, it made me angry and it, it made me um, sink deeper into my ideology. But what did work was receiving compassion and empathy from the people that I least deserved it from when I least deserved it. And, uh, and these were people who were African-American or Jewish or gay uh, or Latino. And even though they knew um, 
you know, how ugly my, my rhetoric was and, and how violent my actions were, they still found a way to reach me. And that was, you know, by empathizing with me. And it was those interactions, and in fact, those were the first interactions I had ever had with anybody that I thought I hated, uh, that over time helped me humanize them. It started to destroy the demonization that was in my head and the prejudice. And I began to realize that uh, these folks were, you know, I had a lot more in common with them than I did, you know, the ones I surrounded myself with to boost my own ego. Uh, so it was a, it was a real um, revelation for me. Uh, to kind of pop that bubble and to start to uh, accept this compassion that was being shown to me. And, and in fact, that's, that is why I changed. That is what brought me out of that. But I should also say I wasn't raised to be a racist. Um, you know, when I was 14 years old, I didn't know anything about politics. I didn't know about racism. Um, and I, I wasn't raised. It wasn't part of my family DNA. Uh, so it was something that I adopted um, because I was looking for acceptance, which is really the case for anybody who goes to some sort of an extremist group. Um, you know, they're they're searching for something and, and that group is very good or any extremist is very good at crafting a narrative that fits that specific person uh, so that they can blame the other for what's happening in their life. So I'm going to talk to you more about the compassion that was shown to you and about recruiting and maybe something, if we can learn anything about how you were recruited, uh, what that will tell us about what's currently happening. Sure. Uh, but first, we're going to take a short break. Have you ever tried a kind bar? You may have seen them in your local grocery store, coffee shop, or gym. They make delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients you can recognize and pronounce. Well... If you're ready to try some tasty and healthy snacks, I have a very special deal for you. You can try 10 Kind Bars for free. All you have to do is pay shipping. When you order the sample box, you can also try Kind's Snack Club. Well, you receive monthly snacks at a discount and get members-only bonuses. I actually belong to Snack Club because um, there's one thing I hate doing, which is grocery shopping. I'm, I'm a grocery shop-phobe. Uh, and... It's nice to just know that you will have snacks in the house. So I encourage you to try Kind's uh, Snack Club and also just try Kind Bars in general uh, because you don't have to choose between your health and taste when it comes to snacking. And that is why both award-winning chefs and nutritionists love and recommend Kind Bars. I have tried their 10 snack sample box and the Snack Club. As I said, I am personally a fan of uh, the bars that have some savory to them, the chili and jalapeno uh, inflected ones, but of course they have your more traditional dark chocolate nuts and sea salt and whatnot. Uh, they also have ones that have like fruit and nuts and ones that are more just nut. Uh, they have chewy ones and not chewy ones. They've got, they got everything. To pick up your free sample box, go to kindsnacks.com slash friends. That's kindsnacks.com slash friends. And I'd like to thank Kind for sponsoring this podcast. And you should remember when you support our sponsors, you help support the podcast. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. 
And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. So in saying you were, you were shown compassion by the people who, uh, had the least reason to, to give it to you, uh, people of color, uh, Jewish people, um, gay people. That brings up a real hot button topic around here, uh, which is, I can maybe frame it as two related questions, actually. One is, should you be friends with Nazis? Uh, which is this weirdly, which is a question I cannot believe I just articulated in here in 2018, the year of our Lord. Um, <laughs> to, to have to even say that is mind-blowing. Um, and then it is a beautiful gift that those people gave you to be compassionate towards you. But there's a part of me that really kind of, you know, has... I cringe a little bit or seize up a little bit and thinking that it's the job of those people. Yeah, to, to, no, that's to, a really great to, point. You know, I would never put... To reach out to you. Yeah, I would never put the onus on, you know, the victims uh, or, you know, if, for safety issues and for other issues. Uh, it's not their responsibility. Uh, but I am very, very grateful that they saw something inside of me that maybe I didn't even see and took that chance uh, and in fact, you know, I've I've worked with hundreds of people uh, to help them disengage, and and they'll tell you the same thing that they started to build, um, you know, a, a rapport or a connection to somebody that they thought that they hated, and suddenly that was the wedge that they needed uh, to really understand that what they were involved in is wrong. Um, you know, and give me your first question again because I want to. I just answered the second part, but uh, you know, it is the. Hug Again, a Nazi. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. Do you punch or do you hug? Um, do you somewhere in between? Do you, <laughs> th- do you, but are you even friends? Like, I, I, I have my own thoughts about this, but I, I obviously you're perhaps more of an expert than I am. Well, here, here's the thing is I think that we all need to be compassionate and empathetic towards everybody on a daily basis. Uh, and some of those people you might run across may be Nazis. Uh, and I always challenge people when I, you know, when I'm, speaking around the world. And I say, you know, go find somebody that you think is undeserving of your compassion or your empathy and give it to them because I guarantee you they're the ones who need it the most. Um, so, you know, should you hug a Nazi? No. I mean, it, it's dangerous <laughs> in some cases. <laughs> uh, should you punch a Nazi? No, because that is playing right into their hands. They go and they march uh, into progressive areas like Charlottesville or like Berkeley or back even in the 70s, places like Skokie, Illinois, 
And um, they do that intentionally to provoke. Um, they do that because uh, extremists and especially uh, white supremacists love two things, silence and violence. Uh, if we are silent, if we don't speak out against them, if we pretend that they don't exist and sweep it under the rug like we have been, well, then they grow because they're, you know, unchained to really spread as much propaganda as they want and play on real grievances that people have. Uh, if we're violent towards them, they immediately use it as a victim narrative. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, they'll claim that we're taking away their free speech or we're denying them uh, the right to assemble and, and protest. Um, but they do that because they are trying to spin it. They are the masters of spin. It's always somebody else's fault. Um, and I think that there's a middle ground, right? I mean, I think that being visible, being vocal, being vigilant, uh, but not being violent are all really good tactics to take. Um, but, you know, we have to understand that while they're doing monstrous things and saying really monstrous things, these people at some point in their lives were not monsters. They weren't born like this. Something in their life happened or many things happened in their lives that detoured their path. And they found solace in a dark alley with other broken people that were just like them. Um, and I think that if we just practice empathy and compassion on a daily basis with everybody we meet, regardless of who they are, um, then I think we will build a culture of that. Uh, this is not a problem that's going to go away anytime soon, uh, but it's certainly something we need to be proactive about for future generations while we're still dealing with this issue now. Now, in theory, I am 100% on board with what you're saying. And in fact, you know, my faith commands me to do exactly what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. To show compassion and empathy for those that I hate or would, would hate, um, for those who hate me, um, to love them even. And I, I actively try to practice that. I do. But this is unfortunately, like, a, like I said, this is actually a real practical question that people in America are facing today, which is, should I be friends with a white supremacist? And that where I'm not talking about should I, this is sort of a different from punch or hug or speak mm -hmm. out against. Mm -hmm. This is, I know someone in my life who says racist shit and who I think maybe has feelings that are go even deeper than that. Mm -hmm. Am I abetting something monstrous by having that person in my life and not you know, saying something or, or, or telling them I can't be their friend or, or is the path forward what that woman who just had a job at the New York Times for five seconds, mm. who's said she was, you know, she was friends with an actual real life tattoo of a swastika Nazi right. and said that she talked about it with them all the time as if that made it okay too. So, well, you know, I, I think, we probably all know somebody in that camp. Um, so uh, chances are good we all have friends. Some maybe we don't know about, some we do know about that are, you know, buying into this ideology. And I think, you know, pushing them away is not really the right answer because most times what I've seen is, is it, it, people go to these movements because they feel marginalized already. Uh, so the last thing we want to do is push them further into what they're involved in. I think if you have the luxury of having a relationship with somebody who is a white supremacist, you know, trying to and being a good friend, I think the right tactic would be to try and help, uh, to try and listen, 
not to the ideology. Uh, when I work with people, I never talk about ideology. I'm not arguing with them. I'm not debating them. I'm listening. And I listen for what I call potholes, those things that appeared in their path in life that deviated it. And then I become a pothole filler and I hear, you know, trauma, I hear abuse, I hear uh, divorce, I hear mental illness, I hear uh, joblessness and lack of education and, and, you know, could be a million things or, or several things at the same time. Um, and I fill in those potholes by trying to make people more resilient through job training or life coaching or tattoo removal or mental health therapy. And... Um, it's pretty amazing what happens uh, to these people uh, when they feel more resilient, have a higher self-esteem, is that there's less of a need to blame the other. Um, but, you know, I also don't stop there. I do challenge their ideology by introducing them to the people they think that they hate because chances are good they've never had a meaningful interaction with them. And that is the humanization process and realizing that, you know, what they've been taught or what they believed is is not equating to their real life experience now. Um, so, I mean, I don't, if we have somebody we care about who, who is a racist, who is a, a white supremacist, whether card carrying or not, I don't know that the right tactic is to push them away. I mean, I would draw them in closer to try and understand what it is that led them down that path because none of them were born that way. And of course that, that sometimes is a function of our own privilege, right? Absolutely. Uh, if we have someone in our lives that's a white supremacist, it's it's probably because we're white. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe not, but well, chances I would, seem... I would probably guess that there aren't a whole yeah. lot of African Americans <laughs> or people of color with you know buddies who are tattooed with swastikas or you know attending or even more rallies. more you know non non card card carrying types. Right. I, know, I do. I go back to the. Uh, addiction analogy here again, though, and I wonder if there is a middle ground between pushing away and bringing closer, although I appreciate so much your argument about bringing closer. And that is um, in in Al-Anon, which is the group for people who are friends and mm -hmm. uh, relatives of those um, uh, in recovery. They talk about detachment with love. Mm -hmm. When someone is in active addiction doing harm to themselves and probably to you, you make, you create consequences for them. Holding them accountable is very yeah. important. Uh, and yeah. I do. And I think all people should, I don't think we should just, you know, turn a blind eye. I don't think we should accept it. I think we need to hold people accountable, but I, you know, I don't know that accountable is, is publishing somebody's address you know, or their place of employment to get them fired because that certainly is not going to help their life uh, or their opinion of who they're already considering the enemy. Um, holding people accountable for what they say and what they do is important, uh, but there is a way to do that, um, you know, just like we do with children. Uh, we don't banish our children when they do something wrong. We hold them accountable. We still love them, uh, but, you know, we want to guide them to a better place. And I think that that's something that, you know, as bystanders, we can all do, uh, whether it's a family member, a coworker, a friend, a, a colleague, whatever the case may be, we shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't pretend it doesn't exist. But at the same time, we need to understand to not be aggressive towards it, uh, because that certainly is not going to work. I, I mean, I do hear that to be aggressive towards it feeds, feeds the energy mm -hmm. there. You know, uh, I've talked about this on the show before, but like my chosen tactic with the people in my life who say racist things is to let them know that they can't say that in front of me, mm -hmm. um, that I will leave the room, you know, the conversation 
can't continue really. Right. Um, I mean, I'm happy to talk about stuff, talk about issues involving race. Do you know what I mean? I try to make a difference, <laughs> try, to, right. try to distinguish between someone saying a casually racist thing and us trying to talk about an actual issue and using facts and figures and whatnot. Right. Although I realize that arguing doesn't always, debating a topic doesn't always work. Well, here's what I suggest. I suggest that, you know, in a time when we're both, you know, we're on the extremes politically and socially, uh, we've been kind of made to choose a side at this point and, and both of those sides are pretty extreme. And in reality, we're always kind of in the middle floating around. Um, what I suggest is to not start debating from the extremes to try and find a middle ground, but rather to start with the middle ground. Um, you know, the fact that we are American or that we, you know, have children and want our children to be happy and healthy and have an education that we want jobs and we want to build infrastructure. You know, those are things that you can go anywhere in the world and ask somebody what would make them happy. And, and those are things that they would say. So if we start there, even with people who are completely opposite end of the spectrum, we will have established that connection. And then eventually we may go off track, but we will always have that place of connection that we can go back to if we need. If we start out on the extremes with the hope of getting to the middle, we never get there. Um, so maybe that could be a, a tactic that can be employed is to just say, hey, we have all this stuff in common after you know discussing it. Um, let's take it from there. Um, uh, knowing that you have kind of a, you know, a safety net to go back to if you need it. Yeah. I think that that's something that actually almost works better with people who are extreme, you know, yeah. uh, to people who, who know in a way that they're extreme. Um, I think the more typical experience in America today is people who do not realize they are extreme. Um, right. And to try and find that middle ground sometimes just creates even more attention. I mean, it might draw attention to the fact that you both are extreme. So my husband and I are undertaking a bathroom remodel. Uh, it's a big step. Um, We're trying to do it thoughtfully, meaning to have as little disruption in our lives as possible. Of course, some of it is um, inevitable. But one of the things that you focus on when you're doing this is just how great it's going to be when it's over. And I kind of indulge in that by at least some of the time looking at the towels and other kind of accessories we're going to be able to have in our beautiful new bathroom. And I do look at the parachutehome.com website for that. Uh, I have spoken before. I already have some parachute uh, towels that I really love. The parachute towel sheets, the bath sheets that are so enormous that I can wrap myself in. We're probably going to get more of those uh, in, in colors that'll be our new color scheme. Uh, they also have blocked canvas shower curtains, which we might use. They have Turkish towels, which are the kind that like aren't, um, you know, nubby, uh, the kind that are, that are more smooth, more like an actual sheet. They have bath rugs. They have robes, which I have not tried myself, but my friend Jake, Jake, if you're listening, hi. Uh, he actually told me recently he used, you know, parachutehome.com slash friends to get his girlfriend a Christmas present of a parachute uh, robe that she basically lives in now when she comes home from work. So I would take that as a recommendation as well. And I have also spoken at length about our parachute sheets, which are on the bed right now as we speak. Navy blue linen. They're not as clean as they could be uh, because we have this new puppy. So I'm having to wash them a lot. And again, I can attest they get softer every time uh, I wash them. So maybe I'll wash them when I get home tonight. So visit parachutehome.com slash friends 
for free shipping and returns on their incredibly comfortable bedding and bath linens. They also offer a 60-night trial. If you don't love it, just send it back. Uh, They give their returns to Habitat for Humanity. So if you do return the things that you bought, you do not have to feel bad about it. But I don't think you'll return them. Go to parachutehome.com slash friends for free shipping and returns on their incredible stuff. Parachutehome.com slash friends. I also wanted to say something, which is your image of the broken person who's drawn to this ideology out of the pain that they've experienced is um, very compelling. And I think it's true also, especially for the most extreme viewpoints. Mm -hmm. I think people have to undergone a lot of pain uh, to find those attractive. But I'll tell you about another CPAC experience, which is um, I met a kid, fresh-faced, all-American. Turns out he's from Wisconsin. Um, his dad was a, a I think, steel worker, um, some kind of industry. And we had a perfectly pleasant com- conversation until he came around to saying, well, white people founded America. Why shouldn't they run it? Right. Maybe he's experienced trauma, but I have to say that's not the first place that I went. <laughs> yeah. Well, he I seemed mean, pretty we, privileged to me. Well, I think extreme privilege could be a pothole. Uh, oh. I think living in a, in such a, a close bubble, uh, you know, could transfer into classism, which, you know, in many cases is, is even racism. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be extreme trauma. Uh, it could be you know, some sort of an event that has never been dealt with correctly. You know, you very well may be learning something at home. I mean, everybody's journey to this is different, but the, but the one common thread uh, is uh, two common threads. There's always some level of trauma. uh, And for most of the people that I've spoken to, it's about acceptance more than it is about ideology. I don't think ideology and dogma drive extremism or drive people to extremism. I think that that's what gives them uh, the vehicle to be angry. It gives them a license. It's the tie that binds them. But I don't, I don't think that that's what brings them there. Uh, I think it's a search, um, you know, for that identity, community, and purpose. That's fundamental for all of us. Uh, and uh, if we are, you know, unable to deal with those potholes as shallow or as deep as they might be, um, you know, it's really easy to get kind of intercepted, I, I think, with a, you know, a message or a narrative that seems to fit what you're thinking. And they also are very good at, at looking for vulnerabilities and real grievances that people have. You know, people are out of work. Uh, you know, they do watch certain media that uses fear rhetoric that scares them to death that, you know, at any moment there's going to be, a, you know, an ISIS attack in the U.S., um, so, you know, people, people are being played through very, sometimes very legitimate grievances. Um, but, uh, you know, it can happen to anybody. I've, uh, Richard Spencer, for instance, is extremely privileged, um, you know, and one would ask, well, you know, he's got an education. He comes from, you know, a well-to-do family. Uh, he's a smart guy. How would somebody like that go into that movement? And, you know, maybe I know because I've had, uh, the opportunity to sit with him for a couple of hours and talk about it. Um, but, uh, you know, most people would look at him and say, he's got everything. Why would he go down that path? And, and I guarantee you, we're all dealing with something that nobody else knows about. 
That's actually the title of a really wonderful essay by the basketball player, Kevin Love, mm. <laughs> that came out this week about talking about mental illness. And it's funny, he just used that exact same language. Everyone is going through something, yeah. which I believe. And and I should add, the kid that I talked to at CPAC, his dad was uh, a blue-collar worker. Right. And my read of him as being privileged was more in that he was a college white, you know, Male, sure. cis, straight, you know, college student here at a very fancy hotel in Washington and talking about white people running the country. And he, it's completely possible. In fact, I think he did mention to me that his father had had trouble with work. Yeah. And so there, I, I, I've, I found some place where I might be able to enter in some, some empathy. Sure. Uh, well, I would ask but that. It is so I, hard. I, you know, I would, I, I would bring up the fact that, you know, if his dad did lose his job, that he'd lose his job because of, you know, some, uh, you know, undocumented worker or offshoring or, uh, or was it the fault of the company seeking profit and maybe looking to move operations to, you know, somewhere where it's cheaper. So here, while we're blaming each other as individuals and, and generalizing on whole races of people uh, or whole groups of people. Um, you know, really, none of us are the ones doing anything to anybody. Uh, it's, you know, uh, we have no control when a factory moves. It's um, capital. Yeah, it's, 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 it's <laughs> really you're, about now money. You're, now you're talking my language. Yeah, it's about money um, <laughs> um, and class. And, and that's actually, that's the socialism part of nationalism, socialism, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the thing I was thinking about this kid, though, even though I can sort of imagine trying to be empathetic right now, um, I did wind up arguing with him a little bit, which I'm sure did no good whatsoever, but I got my dander up. So I argued, I hope I didn't do further damage. But one thing he made me think of uh, is about what recruiting might look like today. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned people are being softened up in a way, perhaps they they it is new, which is like consuming this fear inducing media because mm -hmm. it feels like the white supremacists are not having to work that hard to recruit these days. Like you were targeted like a one-on-one -on -one sales job. We didn't have the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so, so back, you know, 30 years ago when we were, I mean, I mean, the tactics were the same, but now they've, you know, they've amplified it because they have a, a platform that reaches so many people. You know, we would go to places where people were, we knew were vulnerable, uh, you know, where they hung out. So skate parks, punk rock shows, uh, record stores, you know, and you were guaranteed to find some, you know, nihilistic kid who was angry, who was maybe down on his luck, who... Um, you know, wanted to to do something extreme, came from a broken home, whatever whatever the case was, we knew exactly where to go to find groups of vulnerable young people who may not have had, uh, you know, a group to belong to or friends. And, you know, anytime we'd meet somebody, it would start out very benign. And, um, you know, we would play on things that were hard to um, argue over, like free speech uh, or, uh, you know, the fact that, um, in some neighborhoods, crime was committed by African-Americans more than it was the whites who lived there, when in fact, you know, we were even exaggerating that. So we would use, um, you know, these narratives um, based on conspiracy theory, based on lies, you know, we're calling it fake news today, um, and uh, use it to, to really promise paradise to these people and then for a little while deliver.
we would give them acceptance. There, it was a brotherhood. Uh, it, you know, there was a community and there was a purpose, but uh, it was all broken. So, you know, today what we're seeing is, is that same drive to seek vulnerable people and offer them a narrative that makes their life seem better. Um, you know, it's, it's a hero narrative, uh, taking people from obscurity to, you know, to get them to be a part of something that's bigger than them, that's going to change the world. Uh, and young people are idealistic. Um, so it was quite easy, actually, to recruit people. But nowadays, you know, with the Internet, there is so much information out there. It's so hard to distinguish what's real, what's fake, what's misinformation, what's propaganda and what's parody. Um, and, um, you know, young people are spending a lot of time online, especially uh, young folks who maybe don't fit in in society, who may feel socially awkward or maybe dealing with something. And when you go online, you can create your own persona. You can be whoever you want. And uh, it's an instant community. Uh, and one of the tactics that they're using, which is really disturbing um, that I've come across, is neo-Nazi or white supremacist recruiters are specifically going to those same vulnerable places, but now they're online. They're gaming forums. They're uh, mental health forums for ADHD and Asperger's and autism uh, spectrum disorder and schizophrenia because they know that there are people there who likely in real life are struggling and don't may not have many friends or may not, you know, have a group to belong to. And they're flooding these places with, with propaganda and fear rhetoric. Yeah. And, um, we're, you know, seven out of the 10 people that I work with, uh, have been diagnosed with, uh, you know, either autism or Asperger's. And, and it's a trend that I've been seeing over the last year and a half. Well, I hadn't heard that before. I mean, it makes total sick sense, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I imagine they also frequent the incel forums. The involuntary celibates forums? You know, I don't know, but, you know, they definitely are. That seems are, like their kind of thing. Yeah, they're targeting, you know, men's rights type yeah. thing. They're playing on, you know, the idea that that women are are starting to speak out and they're twisting it and amplifying it to, you know, they're anti-man and, you know, white males are, are the most, uh, you know, targeted minority and, and you know, that they will take any kernel of truth uh, and amplify it to, to fit their narrative. So I wonder yeah. if uh, if the people that are decrying the mentally ill being able to buy guns in this, you know, uh, right now, I wonder if those people realize that they're probably adding fuel to some feelings of isolation and uh, marginalization that yeah. make, you know, young men particularly vulnerable to recruitment by extremists. Yeah. Like by calling them sick, saying that they're the ones that are going to shoot up the school. They may not actually be people who are going to shoot up the school, but that will make them feel a lot of hate and anger and ostracized. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I think we, we do need to deal with mental health. I think that we are very under-resourced and under-equipped to deal with, uh, you know, issues uh, of mental health right now. Um, And, uh, you know, it, what, it, what it really boils down to is, is marginalized people, if they're marginalized long enough, somebody will find them and accept them. And sometimes people get lucky. Um, you know, they find somebody with empathy and, and compassion and is willing to, you know, to bring, bring them closer. But sometimes they find people with an agenda who know that they can manipulate these people. And that's exactly the premise that we used. We were looking for people we could manipulate. You know, in many cases, uh, I knew I wasn't telling the truth. So I was actively looking for people to lie to. 
uh, and lie to them so that they would agree with what I was saying and, and, re- and I could recruit them. Same thing is happening today. These conspiracy theories that they're spreading, I mean, it's hard to not go on the internet and step on one of these sites. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Alex Jones, who's, who's spreading, you know, all types of fear rhetoric and, and bullshit, frankly, uh, or Breitbart. Uh, to the thousands and thousands of other smaller sites that are just mirror sites pushing this information out. And because, because of the internet, you know, and the algorithms that curate everything for us, once you start going to these places, well, it thinks that that's what you want to see. So that's all it gives you. Uh, and that's also very dangerous because, you know, we're, we're going into these par- parallel, you know, alternate universes with very few bridges connecting them and, and, uh, Truth is the biggest thing under attack right now. And I think once we lose truth, there's no coming back from that. Wow. So I wanted to wrap up the interview, but. (laughs) (laughs) Stay tuned Um, for part two, I guess. Yeah. Are you hiring, posting your position to job sites and waiting and waiting for the right people to see it? ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way. So they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. Now, I've been listening to ZipRecruiter ads for a long time because I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of talk radio. And I'm going to be honest with you, it only occurred to me, I think literally yesterday, that, oh my God, this is like the big innovation, right? It's recruiting. It's not job posting. Like, you're not just posting a job. You're posting a job to a recruiter who then goes out and finds people. I guess I'd always thought of it as just a kind of elaborate job board, but no, it is zip recruiter, not zip job poster. And I'll continue their ads so they can tell you more about it. But 80% of employers who post a job to zip recruiter get quality candidates through the site in just one day. And zip recruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive. So you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them because it's recruiting. (laughs) Businesses of all size trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right. Free, 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 free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Well, I I guess I'll ask you what, what gives you hope then? Well, I think we're in a time when uh, we're starting to recognize that this is an issue. We're starting to talk about it as a problem, you know, in a, in a society where we've never in our lives used the terms white terrorism. Um, we're starting to start to identify that and, and start to use that language. You know, maybe it's uh, the media hasn't caught on or law enforcement hasn't caught on or the government certainly hasn't caught on. Uh, I think that there is this understanding that, uh, you know, domestic terrorists exist uh, in our country. You know, people like Dylan Roof, uh, you know, who pens a, a, a manifesto, uh, an ideological manifesto about what he wants to do and then walks into a church to terrorize people. Uh, people like Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, you know, most people don't know he was a very avid supporter of the Aryan nations, um, you know, to the, the Portland train uh uh, stabbings and killings mm-hmm. to Wade Michael Page in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I mean, the fact is white supremacists have killed more people since 9-11 uh, on American soil than any other foreign or domestic terrorist group combined by a factor of two. Uh, and we still haven't called it terrorism. Uh, that's, that's to me, um, it's hopeful that we're moving in the right direction. But I'm also seeing the average person who is 
who has never been political or who's never wanted to, you know, to support a cause now willing to go out there and, and speak their mind to march, to, to go out and vote maybe when they haven't. And to talk about these issues, I think there are a lot of people with good intentions who are really searching for answers on what they can possibly do uh, to help fix the situation. And that encourages me. And what do you think an average person can do? Is it go out and vote? Is it march? Well, I think we need to not be scared to address these issues uh, because it, frankly, is the biggest issue that has kind of smoldered in our country's history. And, uh, you know, we need to talk about it. But the average person person needs to use whatever tools they have available. If they're, you know, a teacher, they have a certain set of tools. If they're an artist, they have another set. If they're, uh, you know, in law enforcement you know, they have another set of tools and some people want to go out and be activists uh, and protesters and that's fine too. Um, so I think everybody needs to go into this thinking uh, that they can affect the people immediately around them as much as mm -hmm. possible. And then hopefully that grows exponentially after that. And if I, I just sort of thought of this, but I'll put it out there, which is that I think that people need to start using the language of white supremacy. I mean, start saying the words like white supremacy, you get comfortable saying that phrase. Right. Um, get comfortable saying that the thing that you're describing sounds X to me, you right. know? And but, but we have to learn, be careful learn ways, But learn ways to say not you. Yeah. Not I'm not saying you, right? Like right. not calling people racist. I, I actually think the skills that people, skill set that people need to develop is the ability to, to describe what they hear people, other people saying. Right. But we also have to be cognizant of, of, you know, calling every Republican a Nazi or a racist. I mean, of course, that's not the case. Uh, and that, you know, in fact, makes people's opinion of the people who say those things, uh, you know, they think of them as the enemy and it pushes them more extreme. Um, so, you know, you're right. We need we need to we need to address this head on, uh, but we need to do so in a way that it doesn't um, it doesn't marginalize people further. Yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, putting policy first in, in terms of when you're talking about white supremacy or, or, or any kind of systemic, sure. you know, uh, bigotry. That Just as long as you don't bring up the word systemic bigotry because they'll, they'll <laughs> deny it exists. Well, I mean, but, but to talk about systems um, and policies rather than people. Sure. Like, I do think it's not very useful to, like, have a debate or to call someone racist. Like, is the president racist or do, or should I call XYZ racist? Like, that's right. hardly ever useful. Right. You know, um, but to talk about the ways that policies can turn out to have racist outcomes, uh, to talk about the system embedded in a, a certain assumption right. that someone's making. Like, I think that those are skills that unfortunately like people need to get better at today yeah i mean i i would never you know generalize and call anybody a racist or a nazi or anything like that but certainly if they were uh, i would point that out to them um <laughs> you know because, well, i'm not even saying that but like yeah. short of that you know like you you know the system you're describing sounds to me like something that marginalizes a lot of people yeah you know and like saying that to someone yeah, I mean, I, it, listen, everybody has a different approach and, and every yeah. person has a different way of accepting, uh, you know, those approaches. So it, it really is an individual uh, thing. But, you know, we're now dealing with, uh, you know, a country that is very divided um, where, you know, half of the voting population voted for a candidate that that 
used in many cases the same fearful rhetoric that I used to use 30 years ago. And although maybe the words are a little bit more palatable and a little bit more targeted uh, for American appeal, um, you know, we have to be careful to not appease uh, and, you know, kind of coddle racism. Uh, if it exists, we need to be vigilant against it. If, if uh, you know, if somebody we know and care about is saying it, I don't think we need to, you know, walk on eggshells around them. I think we need to confront it in the most compassionate way possible. Um, but the last thing we need to do is, is sweep it under the rug, because I guarantee you, if we do that, it will not go away. We'll, we'll only grow and, and uh, you know, we'll be dealing with this again in another 40 or 50 years. I think that we have just called on people to have uncomfortable conversations, which is uh, the point yeah. of my show. I call it cautious compassion. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> so, Christian, thanks so much for coming on. It's my pleasure, Anna. Thanks for talking to me. And that's it for the show. I am ending with some bonus content, which is to revisit uh, something that Jamil Smith and I talked about last week when we were talking about Black Panther, and I got a little bit obsessed with wanting to hear how it is that Wakanda decided not to take Killmonger back after his father died. Like, I I felt really strongly at the time that there was not a quote-unquote good reason for them to leave him in Oakland. A lot of people wrote me about this, probably because I was a little bit adamant about it. Like when I get fixated on what I think of as a logic problem in a movie, I can get, well, I get fixated. Um, and some people were really super helpful about it. Uh, one, I want to apologize because I, because it may have come across like I was white-splaining to Jamil, and he was, of course, very graceful about not pointing that out, but other people did point that out, that I did that. So, sorry. Uh, and then the other thing that people pointed out to me was that I was kind of looking at it wrong. Like I was looking at it through my white eyes and my white experience and my white understanding uh, and maybe just trying to put myself in the position of uh, the Wakanda uh, leadership. And I can't. I can't do that because I am I am not Wakandan and technically no one is. But I think the black experience informs uh, the decision that the Wakandans made to not take back that child. Uh, it was pointed out to me that it could be conceived of this way. It was simply not the Wakanda way to accept what was actually only a half African child. They would consider him like half African and half, you might say, American, African American. Uh, and that it wasn't just about like keeping a secret or uh, the inconvenience or the questions it might raise but whether or not they would stick with tradition and that tradition being so deeply ingrained that you wouldn't might do something that didn't actually seem to make much sense, like leaving that child behind. It is not necessarily a logical thing to do, which is why maybe I thought of it as a logic problem. In any case, I appreciate everyone that pushed back on me and reached out to me. And I will be thinking about that mistake for a while. That mistake of mine, I should say, not the mistake in the movie. Anyway, that is it for the show. That is it for the season. I hope you enjoyed your bonus content. I will remind you that you can rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It has been wonderful spending this past year with you. See you in a couple weeks. 